have been walking through this letter. We've just begun. We're, we're uh, a few steps into it. And this morning, we, we come to um, one of the most uh, beautiful and majestic and splendid and challenging portions in all of our Scripture. And so, I want to read that in just a moment, but I'll set it up this way. Um, Scotty Pugh and Sean McGuire, uh, these were guys in my elementary school, and they were the guys that were, you know, in elementary school, they had more hand-eye coordination than anybody else. They were the best athletes. They always got picked first. You know, we were at recess or we're after school and you get together, you're going to play soccer or basketball or, or kickball. Scotty and Sean, they were the most coveted team members. And for some reason, we had a rule they couldn't be captains. And I don't know why. We just did. They would always be the ones that got picked first. And the rest of us, we'd all stand around and wait for our fate. You know, how long would it take before I got picked? And whose team was I going to be on? And, you know, just hoping, just hoping you're not the one that's picked last. Well, Garrison Keeler, from old Prairie Home Companion, there's probably a handful of you who know him, he wrote about it this way. He said, the captains are down to their last grudging choices a slow kid for catcher, someone to stick out in right field where nobody hits it. They choose the last two, uh, they choose the last ones two at a time, you and you, because it makes no difference. The remaining kids, the scrubs, the, the excess, they deal us, they deal for us as liabilities. If I take him, you got to take him, they say. Sometimes I go as high as sixth, usually lower. But just once, I'd like Daryl to pick me first and say, him, I want him, the skinny kid with the glasses and the black shoes. You come on. But I've never been chosen with much enthusiasm. Did you ever think about the fact that you were so valuable to God that he chose you? Not only did he choose you, he chose you early with enthusiasm. In fact, that's what it says this morning right at the top of our passage. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. And that's what I want to talk about today. I want to talk about God's choosing and God's choosing you. And, that, and listen, there have been times in my life that I've personally struggled with the whole concept of it. I've talked to others that have shared similar experiences, and partly it's because at the end of the day, as you consider your salvation, you, you, know, you, you, can, you, you know, well, I might be saved, but in some ways I feel like just barely. You know, I don't know if God really wanted me. And he saved me only because he was obligated to. You know, I believed in Christ, so he had to take me. I think most of us struggle with what we don't fully understand very well. Our worth 
in the eyes of God. We don't really understand how unconditional and unbelievable God's love is for us. God's choice really was. I mean, he chose you to spend eternity with him. He qualified you to spend eternity with him. And he's paid the down payment for you to spend eternity with him. And he's done it all from beginning to end. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. I want to read Ephesians chapter 1. I'm going to begin in verse 3, and I'm going to read to verse 14. One of the things to know about this is that this is one long sentence, 202 words. In the original, there's no punctuation. There's, it's one long, gigantic, run-on sentence. It's as though Paul can't get it out all the way. Listen to how he says it, beginning in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the Beloved. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of His will according to His purpose, which He set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things, things in heaven and things on earth. In Him we have obtained an inheritance, having been been predestined according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of His glory. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of His glory. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. Father, I ask that You would help us this morning that um, as we ascend to the heights of Your Word and all that You have done to bring about the salvation, the, the redemption those who put their trust and their faith in your son Jesus. Father, we discovered this morning you have been at work from eternity past. And Father, you have secured that salvation into our eternity future. And so draw us this morning to your son. And if there's anybody here today, comes to the realization that you know, they don't know your son Jesus. Father, would they hear your call this morning to trust him? 
We ask all this the only way we can, in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Well, a little bit of an overview of chapter 1. Last week, we looked at the first two verses, and that's sort of the introduction. I'm Paul, and you're Ephesus, or you're the church. You're the, you're the saints in Christ Jesus. And he, and he wished for them a well wish, a, a grace to you, and peace from our Lord Jesus Christ. Well, the, the three, verses 3 through 14, we might title Paul's praise of God. And then in 15 through 23, the end of the chapter, Paul is going to turn around and pray for his readers. These verses that we're looking at this morning, these, this 3 through 14, it's like a theological preface, if you will, to the letter. It's, it's, um, it's like a hymn, um, uh, a poem, um, a, a, a psalm of, of praise in which Paul wants to establish, wants us to make sure we know how truly splendid and majestic and awesome the work of God is. I'll tell you how you'd outline this little section if you're taking notes. God is blessed and is to be praised because, and then he's going to give us three reasons. The first is that the Father has elected us in eternity past. That's verses 3 through 6. The Father's elected us in eternity past. The second section, the middle section of it, verses 7 through 12, the Son has redeemed us in historical past. The Father's elected us in eternity past. The Son has redeemed us in historical past. And then third, the Spirit of God has sealed us in our personal or individual pasts. In other words, you might say it this way, that the events of salvation, the events of our redemption were planned. They were initiated by the Father. They were implemented by the Son. They were empowered by the Spirit. Now, there's Trinitarian language here. There's the, the idea that, that Christianity holds, and not the idea, the truth that Christianity clings to, that God is one, there is one God, and He is three. God is one, and He's three, and He's one. One God, Father, Son, and Spirit. And you might be scratching your head and saying, <clears throat> Ross, I don't understand that. And I would say, well, welcome to 2,000 years of Christian history. There are things in, in, in Christianity, there are things about our faith that we believe and that we cling to, even things we don't fully have the capacity in our finite humanness to understand. And that's okay. We realize, we confess God is far greater than we are. He's far bigger than we are. And that God is one. We, we confess that. And God is three in one. And so we cling to that. And we cling to it 
Because a passage is like this this morning. It's a, it's a praise. It's a God is blessed and to be praised. It's like a hymn. It makes me think of the doxology when I was growing up in a small Bible church out in West Texas. We sang it every week. We sang it at the end of the service every week. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above ye heavenly hosts. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. That's what Paul is doing here. Now, two words I want you to make note of real quick, and then we'll, then we'll walk through this passage. But I want you to make note of two words. One is the word blessed or blessing, and it appears three times in verse 3. And the next word I want you to make note of is the word glory. It's going to be there at the end of verse 6 at the, um, or actually the beginning of verse 6, the end of verse 12, and the end of verse 14. Now, now, blessing or blessed is a word that we get, the word behind it is eugelatos, uh, uh, and it is the word we get eulogy from in our English language. It means spoken well of, or to give praise, or, or to enrich probably heard a eulogy, usually in the context of a funeral or celebration of life, where you speak well of someone. You, you honor their memory. You honor who they are. And that's what we do at a human level. This verse in verse 3, this, this blessing, the, the, the blessedness is part of the very character of God. And we want to speak well of Him. We want to honor Him. We want to give Him all majesty. And Paul says, partly because in this context, because of the blessings, the way in which He speaks over us and enriches us and blesses us with all spiritual blessings. Well, the next word, the word glory, and I, I just want to uh, make note of that. Glory means radiance or, or, or honor splendor, majesty. It's the, it's the glory of God that Moses wants to see. God says, you can't see my glory and live. And he hides him, you know, in the cleft of the rock and passes by and Moses sees, sees him from behind. It's just that glimpse of the God who had passed by. Moses comes off the mountain and he's radiating to the degree that the people of Israel, they can't even look upon Moses. This is glory. Well, one more note about that, and it, you wouldn't know it in the, in the English, but it, it's there, and that is in verse 5, if you'll look, and also in verse 9. In verse 5, it says, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the, and then there's the word purpose of His will. That word purpose has the same root word, God's glory, His splendor. God's purpose, think about it this way, is the overflow of His glory. You could translate it, His good pleasure. God's glory overflows in your life. 
And it comes to us as his purpose for us, his good pleasure. In other words, God's pleasure, his good pleasure, his purpose is where we find our greatest joy. And what God's done eternally and historically and personally to accomplish redemption, all of it was for the purpose of his glory. Now, one of the things that fascinates me so much about this as I think about it is that Paul is the man who writes this. And, and at the time that Paul writes this, he's imprisoned. He's under house arrest. He's, he's chained to a, a Roman guard. And yet he is so preoccupied in that moment with Christ, so concerned that his readers would know. So concerned we would know. And you wonder, how can this be? I mean, Christ has control of his heart, his mind, his attitudes, his perspective, and all of it is because of what he writes here. The chains that bound Paul could not restrain his praise. And his praise for what God does for us. See, the day we live in, this day and age, It's so focused on what we can do for God, or the, the achievement and the earning of God's favor and the pleasing of God, so that, so that somehow He'd take notice of us or, or be pleased in us, or we could assuage His anger. Paul would say, That's nonsense. God has come to our rescue, we've not come to His. He's done all of this and what He has done for us, these astounding and, and marvelous things we don't deserve. But He's done them for us because of His grace. Well, let, let's look at it this way. Let's approach it this way. Let, let's look at, at ten truths in this doxology, if you will, that are worthy of praise, that are worthy of our meditation. The first one I want you to see in verse 3. It says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. You can put a little one out there in the margin of your Bible if you want to. So verse 3, think about it this way. It's the big idea of the whole sentence. Blessedness, like we said, is the description of the character of God. And God's blessed us. He's enriched us. He's blessed us, we find, with status, with, with privilege, with security. The whole section here, I mean, it's meant to, to stir us up. It's meant to rouse us, to, to shake us from the plane that we live on, of, of things that we see with our eyes, and awaken our senses to things that are unseen, no, no less real. In fact, we might argue even more real than what we see with our eyes. And these spiritual blessings are the realized promise of the gospel. See, we find that what God demands of us as his creations, to be holy and blameless, to, to, to live in the light of and reflect correctly his glory, what God demands for us and on us, we find he bestows upon us and he enables us and these spiritual blessings, all of them relate to what we lost 
because of sin. We're redeemed from sin. We're reconciled to God. We're restored to full purpose and design of who we were created to be. See, having fallen short of His glory because of sin, God redeems us, restores us to the measure of His glory. You might think of blessings this way. There's three kinds of blessings, and I'll run through this quick, but there's, Scripture tells us there's the blessings that are on, on creation, but blessings that are shared by all of creation, the sun, the moon, the stars, the seasons, the the rainfall, all of those things are shared by all of creation. There are also blessings that are bestowed upon all mankind, blessings such as morality and civility, government, technology, arts, music, science, wonder, intelligence, emotion, all mankind has been bestowed with those blessings. What Paul's talking about here are the blessings that belong to those in Christ. Only in Christ may these blessings be received. He's our source of blessing. He's the mediator of the blessing. He's the why of the blessing. And the truth is that outside of fellowship with Christ, there is no part in the blessing of the Father. In fact, you can't even, you, just, you discover you can't even call God Father apart from Christ. Well, verse 3, the spiritual blessings, that's the first one. I want to look at the second truth, and this is in verse 4. And he says it this way in verse 4, um, He has chosen us in Him before the foundations of the world. Before there was matter, or light, before anything was created, He chose us. The third one, verse 5, He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. Let me talk about those words for a minute. Chosen. It's actually the word we get election from. And the truth is, God did not choose anyone because they were holy or that you had any legal claim to be chosen. On the contrary, the truth is, all people are sinners. All people deserve the rejection from God. There's no obligation on God's part to choose anyone, but He freely chooses some. It's the evidence of His great Christ, the point is, if God hadn't taken the initiative, no one would have His everlasting presence in life. The real problem is not why He, chose, why he had chosen some. The real problem is why He chose any. This is why Paul praises. Now, now, to be predestined, it's a little different. It means to be marked out. A course is set. Predestined, uh, it is, listen, it's always unconditional. And it's always initiated by God. He alone is responsible. It speaks to the divine purposes that God has as it relates to all created things. It literally means He marks off 
It's His prerogative, His perfect will. Now, I am not naive. These words, chosen or elected or predestined, those words make us nervous, don't they? I hear people say sometimes, why do we believe in predestination? It's like, well, okay. But you have to deal with Ephesians 1.5. You've got to deal with Romans 8 and Romans 9. It's not a matter of whether you believe in it or not. It's a matter of what do you believe about it. Well, the first thing is that choosing, I want you to see this. The choosing was before time as we know it, before the creation of the world, before the foundation of the world. God's choosing comes before human need, and in fact, before human existence. One theologian, the very time of election shows it to be free. For what could we have deserved, or in what did our merit consist before the world was made? Second, the reasons for God's choosing were only in Himself. Notice what it says, the end of verse 4, beginning of verse 5, in love He predestined us. His choosing, listen, this can't be separated from the love of God. This is not a a roulette wheel. This isn't a pull a number out of a hat. Where love is supreme, we sing, there is no place for fate or whimsy. There's a story of a young girl, and she visits her uh, grandfather, um, her grandfather visits her, and, and I've probably heard me tell this before, but she's playing with these dolls. And the grandfather says to her, which one of these dolls do you love the most? Well, which is your favorite? Well, she brings out this totally raggedy doll. Just all messed up, all torn up. Grandfather says, well, why is this your favorite doll? She says, well, if I didn't love this doll, nobody else would. And if God didn't love us, No one would love us like we were designed, created to be loved. There's this vacuum in our hearts, and it's created so strong, the only thing that can fill it is the love of God. And God's love is absolutely unconditional as He lavishes it upon you. And what that means is there's no room for pride here or imagined merit. It is only to be met with profound humility and thanksgiving. He's adopted us that we would call him Father. I want to talk about that more next week. But let me just say for a moment, I'm not here to defend God this morning. He does not need my defense. He's God. I think what we see in Scripture is plain. I think it's plain in its teaching. My role, help us understand it, explain it the best I can, Try to illustrate that, although no illustration is perfect. We're never able to capture fully the mind of God. In some here, you feel the tension of this truth today. That's okay. And I would just encourage you, spend time with that tension. Spend time with the God of that tension. 
Spending time with a God who can handle that tension. Some here, you feel incredibly encouraged. I hope you do. These are encouraging words. They're incredibly important. An old theologian, uh, R.B. Kuyper, he used the following illustration. Talk about God's sovereignty and man's responsibility. This is the tension. And he says this. I like what he says. He says, I liken them to two ropes going through two holes in the ceiling and over a pulley above. If I wish to support myself by them, I must cling to them both. If I cling only to the one and not the other, I go down. I read the many teachings of the Bible regarding God's election and predestination, His chosen and so on. And I read also many of the teachings regarding whosoever will may come and urging people to exercise their responsibility as human beings. These same contradictions or seeming contradictions, cannot be reconciled by the puny human mind. With childlike faith, I cling to both ropes, fully confident that in eternity, I will see that both strands of truth are, after all, of one piece. That's helpful. I must cling to both. There is the there's divine sovereignty. Man, this in no way negates or diminishes our human responsibility to answer the call of the gospel. Well, some might say, well, is election, is it fair? Is God fair? I would say, of course he's not fair. If he was fair, then we would all be in trouble. Well, what about our free will? Well, first, let me say this. You're completely responsible for your sin, and it's yours. And you're responsible to turn from that sin. And secondly, the elect are not saved until they accept Christ. The elect still have to be in Christ. Your election is never considered apart from Christ. In verse 4, we're chosen in Christ, but God never shows up in the Bible to say, hey, Ross, I want you to know, Ross, you're elect. We're never told that. We are all presented with the truth of Jesus. Spurgeon said many people want to know their election before they look to Christ, but they cannot learn it thus. It is only to be discovered by looking unto Jesus. Look unto him, believe him, and you shall make the proof of your election directly, for as surely as you believe, you're elect. Notice verse 6, and he did this all to the praise of his glorious grace. This is a truth that is drenched in God's love. It's not a truth like one said, it's meant to be a puzzle to the mind. It's meant to be a pillow to the heart. They're not designated as these thorny pieces of God's truth. They're meant to magnify, blow open this dimension of God's love. Well, that's salvation. That's redemption from, his, 
from eternity past. So look with me at the next five things that we're going to give praise for. Salvation in historical past. Look at verse 7. He redeemed us. In Him we have redemption in His blood. Means you, you pay the price and you get something in return. It's, it talks about the process of freeing a slave, to, to set free, to liberate, to deliver. Free to obey, free to serve. Free now to honor, free to live. He redeemed us through His blood. That's the payment. Number five is also in verse seven. He forgives us the forgiving of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. John the Baptist looks and sees Jesus coming towards him and he says, behold, he takes away the sin of the world in John 129. In Psalm 103, the psalmist says, he does not deal with us according to our sins nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgression from us. He forgives our trespasses. Number six comes in verse eight. He's lavished his grace upon us. And all wisdom and insight. We find that the, just the phrase above it at the end of verse 7, it's according to the riches of His grace that He's lavished His grace. It's not out of His grace. It's not as though He hears grace and takes a little bit of it. It is according to. It is, it is in, in uh, a symmetry with with all of God's grace. Number seven, verses nine and ten, he's made known to us the mystery of his will, and we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. But, but we praise God. This doxology of, of praise is because he's made known to us the mystery of his will. That word mystery refers to something that, that once... Uh, was hidden, but now it's made known, and you find it was hidden in plain sight all along. And now it's made known, and that's what happens in the New Testament. It refers to these truths about God's redemption, clearly revealed in the Old Testament. And now since the resurrection of Christ, they've come, they've come to light. plan of God, it, as it's revealed in Jesus, caught most of the religious Jews off guard. See, they were anticipating this great and mighty warrior, this victor, this leader that would come and overthrow Rome to be rescued from Gentile oppression and restore the kingdom to Israel. But Christ shows up as the one who executes the plan that was planned from before the foundations of the world. And the mystery, you see, is not only to redeem Israel, but to redeem all mankind, Jews and Gentiles. 
so that they might become one new man in the church. See, this mystery, it broke loose through the gospel of salvation. Paul he talks about this mystery as being revealed in wisdom and insight. We'll see more of this to come. Simply put, here's what he's saying. God's timing is perfect. His plan is impeccable. His purposes are unimpeachable. We'll look at the eighth thing. This is in verse 11. He has given us an inheritance God's provided for believers an eternal, irrevocable inheritance, and it's grounded in His sovereign choice and predestined according to His will. Because we're in Christ, because of our position, we're joint heirs with Christ. Those who have trusted in Christ receive not only the spiritual blessings of forgiveness and reconciliation and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, but also the promise of heaven with Christ. All of this to the praise of His glory, verse 12. It reminds us, God's love cannot be gauged by what happens to us. The things that happen to us are not the evidence of God's love for us. The evidence of God's love for us is the cross. It is the sending of His Son out of eternity into history to take on our sin, to die in our place, to accomplish salvation for us. It also means that God's love can't be affected by the things we do to it. Not obedience. No, absolute perfection does not affect God's love for you. And your disobedience, on the other hand, does not affect God's love for you. And it's so unnatural for us. Performance, you know, is required in every other relationship. What Paul's saying here, you'll never be more actively loved by anyone more than God more generously, more unconditionally by anyone the way that God loves you. Well, verses 13 and 14, um, this is salvation in our personal past. Look at it. In Him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and you believed in Him, you were sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit. That's number nine of things to praise Him for. Verse 13, He has sealed us. In the ancient days, that word was used to, to seal something that was finished. It has been accomplished. And in verse 14, He's given us His guarantee, His pledge. That's number 10 find that pledge is the promised Holy Spirit. You were marked by the Holy Spirit. Well, let me say, <clears throat> there is much in these verses that overwhelm us. Some of it's beyond our full comprehension, which means it's also beyond full explanation. But Paul writes it, and it is 
truth, majestic truth, and it's, it's enough for us to know. It's, it's like the, the door cracked open in a dark room, and, and the light creeps in, and, it, and it's too bright for our eyes. It's enough to know the bright majesty of God's sovereignty has worked to accomplish the salvation that he planned. Our experience of salvation. That, that, that first encounter with our decision to trust Christ, our, our believing, our receiving, our choosing, our yes to God. You see, what we experience, we experience as the exercise of our free will. It's described that way because we're not forced into it. We're not left without a choice. We're not without a moment on our part that we have to step away from self and toward Christ. See, all of that describes how we came to experience salvation, our awareness of God's grace to be received. And so, we hear the gospel and we reach out in faith and take hold of it. And all of this we discover, as Paul writes, only describes our experience of salvation. See what Paul does? He, he opens the blinds on the windows. So this is your experience? Well, let me open the blinds, and it reveals this bright, shining sunlight of God's eternal plan, God's salvation beginning in eternity past and accomplished in historical past through His Son, Jesus. Then it's applied to our life by the Holy Spirit. So that before we ever came to love God, we see the overwhelming brightness of truth. He first loved us. Salvation is not an afterthought of God in response to sin. Salvation's planned before the foundations of the world, before Genesis 1, before light is called to shine over darkness. Salvation is already planned by God. When Jesus stepped into history to execute what had been planned from eternity, the Bible says it was for joy set before him that he endured the cross. We say this all of eternity for you. In a moment, as you experience it, is decided by this question, what did you do with Christ? Did you trust Him? Did you put your faith in Him or did you, re you reject Him? Did you turn your back? Remember, you need to hear this more. God's been pursuing you from eternity past. And if you don't know Him, this is the morning to hear the call to say, yes, I believe C.S. Lewis tells of his own story and surprised by joy. He says, you must picture me alone in the room in Magdalene, night after night, feeling whenever my mind lifted, even for a second from my work, the steady, unrelenting approach of him whom I so earnestly desired not to meet. That which I greatly feared had come at last upon me. 
In the Trinity term of 1929, I gave in and I admitted that God was God and I knelt and prayed, perhaps that night, the most dejected and reluctant convert in all of England. I did not then see what is now the most shining and obvious thing, the divine humility which will accept a convert even on such terms. The prodigal son at least walked home on his own. But who can duly adore the love which will open the high gates to a prodigal who is brought in kicking and struggling and screaming, resentful, darting his eyes in every direction for a chance to escape? Who can plumb the depths of divine mercy? The hardness of God is kinder than the softness of men. And His love is our liberation. You know, some of you are living with shame, maybe, uncleanness, anger, bitterness. The results of a past where you look back and you think, man, I've made all the wrong choices. Or you look back and you think, man, I've just been stalked by tragedy and wickedness and evil. and I've been done nothing but wrong in my life. And I can't tell you why that is. I don't know. But some of you are living with that. And I can tell you, though, this morning, on the basis of this passage, that there is a God, in fact, who has pursued you. He has pursued you from eternity past. He has stalked you with the sole intent of wrapping his arms around you and saying, I love you. I love you purely. I love you forever. And you can never escape the grasp of my perfect love. There's nothing you can do that will change the past, undo the past, but it can be offset. It can be redeemed. What God has done from eternity past overwhelms and it redeems anything and everything from our own personal past. Paul has been singing praise about the God who has pursued you from before the foundation of the world. Maybe this is the morning that your weary soul would rest in Him. If you would, would you bow with me? Let's pray. And ask John Ray to come up and we'll sing one little chorus after I pray and we'll be dismissed. Father, I ask that you would take these truths, these mind-boggling truths. And Father, would you grant us the faith to believe and to take hold and lean into. Father, you just don't barely save us. You just don't, you're not reluctant about us coming to salvation. You, you don't wince when you see us. Father, the truth is, before there was anything, there was your love that pursued us. And so draw us this morning to your Son, Christ. 
to the sacrifice Jesus made in becoming humanity and taking on our sin, taking on my sin, dying with it and dying for it, being raised to new life. So that, Father, the salvation you planned in eternity came about in history. And Father gets, gets executed, gets, gets brought home to me by your Spirit and can do that even now. So we ask that you would do what only you can do. And we pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus, and by the power of your Spirit. Amen. Let's sing the doxology. You want to do that? Yes. Would you stand with me? Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him all creatures here below. Praise Him above the heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. I